additional message because this question wasn't in the book, and we thought, man, this is such a crucial question to ask um, that we just wanted to add this at the end and tack this on at the end as another way for us to evaluate um, and kind of assess where we are. So here's the question. Are you seeking opportunities to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus? That's the question. And here's the main one word in there that I think is key, and it's seeking. Are you seeking opportunities? Are you going after them? Are you looking for them? And even are you creating environments within your friendships and your coworkers and your neighborhood and your family members where that kind of dialogue can happen? Um, and so that's something that I'm always trying to think through when I'm with my family um, or with people that I care about who don't know Jesus um, or maybe know of him but aren't followers of him. And so uh, I'm just going to kind of deal with the elephant in the room. Um, for some of you who might be thinking, great, we get to talk about me not talking about Jesus enough anymore. <laughs> cool, we get another, another chance to feel really guilty. Awesome, glad we came to church today so I can be told how horrible I am as a follower of Jesus who doesn't talk about Jesus. I mean, I read the Bible a lot, isn't that? That's really good, right? And I, I pray when I, when I think about it, but okay, so he's going to tell me I'm, I stink, so um, that's cool. Well, I can actually relate to that reaction, actually, because to be honest, I've sat in various events and various church services. I've even um, made the mistake of presenting this type of material, um, which is really just clever ways of saying you stink or do better or um, Jesus is really disappointed in you. And so I, I hope that today that that's um, not the case. I, in fact, I can remember one of the most impressionable illustrations that was ever used to help motivate someone to share their faith uh, comes from the movie Titanic. Have you ever seen the movie Titanic? You can judge me if you want. I've watched it any, actually multiple times. I actually think it's a pretty, pretty cool movie. Um, but at the end, there's this scene with a lifeboat, and everyone's getting into the lifeboats, and they're running, and they're, they, the ship's going down. And I, in case I'm spoiling it for you, close your ears. <laughs> In case, you, in case you don't know the Titanic, the, it's real life events. It's not a, you know, it's a, so the, the, it sinks, just so you know. I'm just, so you, now you don't have to watch it. It goes right down. So as the ship is sinking and everyone's running to boats to try to get away, there's this one boat where only a few people get on and they're so afraid and they're so scared that they take the boat with only a few of them. It's not even half capacity at this point and they're rowing away and some people are arguing we should wait for others and some people are arguing, no, no, no we got to get out of here. They were kind of rit ritzy rich people that were um, not really interested in, in helping other people. And so, um, and so after a while, they're, they're floating away, and they hear these screams in the distance of people that are not on lifeboats and are floating in this icy water, and they hear screams for help. And so they finally decide, okay, so if somebody grows a conscience, and they finally go back, and they're rowing back, and by the time they arrive to this scene, there's no one alive. It's just bodies floating in the water. And someone in the boat says, we're too late. They're already gone. And... At the time, this illustration, which was quite effective for some shock value, um, but it illustrates the point that as Christians, we, we don't share our faith. Um, we're like those in the boat that leave everyone to die in the icy waters of hell, although hell is not icy, so just go with the illustration anyway. Um, someone, uh, or once we're safe in the boat, who is Jesus in the illustration? Jesus is the lifeboat who saves us from our demise. And once we're all set in the boat, we neglect to help others because we're all good. We don't have to do anything else. We're in the boat and nice and safe. So why bother telling anybody else? And that 
illustration was really popular when the movie came. In fact, I saw it multiple times. I used it once in a youth ministry when I was a youth pastor and um, attempting to try to evoke some sort of response for sharing our faith. But let's be honest, I don't really think that's very inspiring because it really just produces guilt at, the, at some level. It, it shows me how what I'm not doing and not doing well and what my current state is actually doing, which I guess is helpful in some way. Um, but in fact, I think that most people would be paralyzed by that. It doesn't inspire action. It actually um, hinders action. Guilt is rarely a helpful tool to inspire people to action. So what's funny is Jesus usually tells us who we are. He gives us titles and says, this is who you are, so do this. He doesn't just say, you're not doing this very well, unless you're a Pharisee, then he always told you how much you're not doing something very well. But for those that were coming to follow him and that were following him, he gave them titles a lot. And so he would say things like, you are the light of the world. So you should act like this. And you are the salt of the earth. So you should act like this. And so um, there's lots of titles that a person um, takes on once they become a follower of Jesus. And today we're going to settle on yet another title that once we become a follower of Jesus. So let's dive into our text and see if we might be motivated and inspired through the word of God as it relates to evangelism. My guess is that everyone in this room who loves and follows Jesus wants to be a better uh, wants to be better at sharing their faith. That whatever fears hinder them, they want to get over them. Whatever stops them from doing it, they're not satisfied with it. And so I go into this knowing and believing that those of us that are following God just want to do um, better at this. And so my hope is that we can be inspired. Second Corinthians 5, 9 through 21. It says this, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. But if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, there's lots of therefores. Everything is leading into this stuff. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is so much awesome sauce in those verses. It's crazy. But did you catch it? Did you catch our title? We are ambassadors for Christ. 
That's a title that we are given upon becoming a follower of Jesus. Now, consider this for a moment. The moment you're married, you have the title of husband or wife. That's your title. You might really be bad at it. Like, you might really stink. doesn't make you not a husband or not a wife. It just makes you not a very good one. But you're still one. The moment you have a kid, you are a mom or a dad. You're a parent. You might not be a very good parent right off the bat. You might need some help along the way, but you're still a parent. And so um, in this case, in this scenario here, we are ambassadors. Upon our salvation in Christ, we become ambassadors for Jesus. We're going to get into what that means. But everything in the passage basically revolves around these verses in 18 through 20 where we see the primary ministry of every follower of Christ on this planet. Every single person that follows and loves Jesus has been saved and forgiven of sin is to persuade people to be reconciled to God. To persuade people to be reconciled to God. Now, this could feel a little off at first because, to be honest, we don't actually do much persuasion. It's the Holy Spirit who convinces people, who changes hearts, who moves in the hearts of people to, to, to change their way, to repent of their sin, to follow and trust Jesus, to give their lives to him. He's the one that convinces people to repent. So we don't actually persuade, but we do aim to do that. We aim for our words and our actions to be pers- uh, persuasive as it relates to how people respond to and see Jesus. So it doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or an introvert, a doctor, a pastor, a truck driver, a nurse, a stay-at-home mom, you own your own business, single, married, young, old, black, white, doesn't matter. Every single person who loves and has been forgiven uh, of their sins and loves Jesus, you are an ambassador for Christ. That's who you are. Once God, through Christ, reconciles you to himself, you are given in that moment the ministry of reconciliation. Again, we're probably not that great at it at first. We've never done it before. We need some help along the way. But it, it is true that this is true about us. And he's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So in this passage, um, Paul outlines three ways that our hearts are moved toward this ministry of reconciliation that is supposed to help motivate and inspire us to carry this out Um, to not neglect it. Because again, most of us in the beginning of that are not good at it. And the more that we neglect it, um, the more fearful we usually become of it. So initially, the passage was going to start in verse 11, um, but we kind of see that we have to go back a couple verses because when you see a therefore, you got to figure out what it's there for. And so we had to go back to verse 9 to figure out what the therefore was there for. But the first thing we see in verse 11 is that we are motivated by the fear of of the Lord. We are motivated by the fear of the Lord. And the first thing we read when we go back to verse 9, because it says, therefore, right, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So what's that therefore, therefore? Well, the first thing we see in verse 9 is we aim to please the Lord. Whether, whether away or at home, meaning in heaven or on earth, we aim to please the Lord. That is, our, um, that is the beat of our heart. We want the Lord to be pleased with who we are and what we're doing with our lives. That's our goal. We're not trying to please man. If I have a choice between God's going to be pleased with me or man's going to be pleased with me, I always aim to please man. Or, I'm sorry, God. I always aim to please God. I forgot which hand I was using. I forgot which, which one was God and which... 
We always aim to please God, even at the expense of maybe some beneficial aspects of life on earth that man might be impressed by and might, we might even be rewarded with because we would do something that would be impressive for man. We would never want to do that at the expense of God. And when it states that we make it our aim to please him, it actually means that this is an ambitious goal, that we're chasing after. It's active. It's not passive. We don't wait for opportunities to do that. We do it on purpose all the time actively. And so um, we aren't to haphazardly go through life and hope that Jesus is proud and happy with us and, and, and is pleased with us. We assess and look at through Scripture what does please him, and then we set our life on a course that looks like that. It's pretty simple. What pleases you? I want to do that. We do that in other relationships. If you're married, hopefully you want to see what kind of things your husband or wife likes, and you want to provide those things because you love them. You don't get them gifts on their birthday that you like. You get them gifts that they like. You don't think about yourself at Christmas. You think about others and get things that they would like. So this is no different, even higher call. If someone were to, now, if someone were to ask you this question, because Paul gives us a reason of why we aim to please God, what motivation, what reason do we have to please God? We're saved. We're going to heaven. Why would we need to do more? Well, if someone were to ask you, why do you aim to please God? And they probably wouldn't word it like that. They'd probably say something like, why do you look so radical about your following Jesus? You're like really crazy about it. Why do you care so much about pleasing God? And our answers could really kind of take two, two um, maybe two, two, two directions. One would be, well, he's holy and perfect. And he deserves every single sacrifice that I could make to align myself with his will, I want to do it because he's perfect and good and, and amazing. Or, and that would be great. Or you might go the other way where he's merciful. He sent Jesus to die for me. That sacrifices, it changed my life. I, he sacrificed his life for me. And so I don't see any reason why I should hold back on sacrificing everything for him. So there's a response, a loving response um, that we have with God in this way. Um, and either of those responses would really be equally as moving, but check out the reason that Paul gives, which is actually surprising when you, when you consider it. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So why do we aim to please the Lord? Because you're going to be rewarded. This is like a parent and a kid. Hey, if you're really good... That's what it feels like on the surface. If you're really good and you do all your chores, you're going to get something for it. You're going to get a reward. So he's motivating us with, this, with what seems like, um, these, like, like a bribe on the surface. That's what it feels like when you initially read it. Um, and we mustn't... Now, here's the important thing. This judgment seat is for believers, for Christians. It's not to be mistaken with the great white throne that we see in Revelation where Jesus... Um, judges the wicked, but this is a place that Christians sit and have their service to God judged. How well did you serve God with your new life in Christ? What did you do with that new life? We sit and we can't hide who we were in this moment. It's really easy to hide who we are in front of each other. It's really easy to even kind of hide the jacked up part of our lives and live those out in secret. But in this moment, we are going to be exposed. And so um, now that's a negative way of looking at it. And even Paul isn't using this in a negative context. He's saying, guys, fight for the will of God 
in your life. Don't give up because there's a reward at the end. Please him. Do what you do everything you can to sacrifice everything you have for his pleasure because at the end there is a great reward. There is a great reward. So while this could, I mean, if you've ever been a car salesman and you work off commission, it's kind of like you sell more cars, you get more money. You sell more expensive cars, you get even more money. So they're always trying to say, that's an incentive so that you don't sit around in your butt and not sell any cars. They didn't hire you to sit in an office, they hired you to be on the sales floor selling cars. And so this idea of commission, this is what it kind of feels like. The harder you work, the more your reward's going to be. And Paul isn't, but Paul is not meaning this in a you better shape up or you'll lose your reward sort of way. He's saying, stand firm. God has a reward. Don't let your present difficulties convince you to throw in the towel. Some people aren't going to care about what you say. Some people are going to straight up mock you. Some people are going to spread rumors about you, which Paul addresses. Some people are just not going to listen. You might lose friendships. It, It might get hard. But Paul is trying to say there is a reward at the end of this. And it's worth every bit of your effort to do this to the best of your ability. So then he says, therefore, we persuade others. We persuade others because we aim to please the Lord and we're going to receive a reward for our hard work. That's amazing. So the first thing, we are motivated by the fear of the Lord. Secondly, verses 5, 14 through 17, we are inspired by the love of Christ. It's intriguing that such opposite emotions such as fear um, and love can be equally motivating factors. And this idea of fear does not necessarily mean terror. It means respect, reverence. It's like a child that loves their parents dearly and yet respects their authority. They aren't afraid of their parents as if they're going to get hurt by them when they do wrong. However, they, they aren't, while they're not afraid, they do submit out of a fear of letting them down in some ways, and they even submit out of a fear of the consequences that would come from their disobedience. They honor their parents by their obedience, and as they grow, hopefully they enjoy obeying more and more. As we grow in the Lord, hopefully we begin to enjoy obeying. It's not as much, it doesn't feel um, like a chore anymore after a while, because less and less of us is getting in the way. There's a joyful response. It's the same with Jesus. As you consider reasons why Christ died, he outlines these right here. To consider the reasons why Christ died, you, can help. you can't help but love him. So number one, Christ died, he says, so that we might die to ourselves. Just like Christ died a sacrificial death, we die to ourselves and abandon our selfish ways and adopt the commands of Christ as our own. And secondly, Christ died so that we might live for him out of the death of our selfish ways, is birthed this new life in Christ. Remember, it says, you're brand new. The old is gone. The new has come. You're a whole new creation. There is nothing about you that used to be. There is a whole new you that is able and capable of serving and loving and following and obeying the Lord. And in this, two major things change, he says. Number one, we have a new view of others. If you read in the verse, it says, from now we regard no one according to the flesh. So from now on, therefore, because of what Christ has done and who we are in him, 
We died to ourselves and we live for him. We have a new view of others. We now see those that don't know Jesus as someone for whom Christ died for. They're not just friends or enemies. They're not just co-workers or bosses. They're not just neighbors. They're not just sisters and brothers and moms and dads. They're bigger than that. We see them the way Jesus sees them, as lost sheep who need a shepherd. And so our hearts should be moved by that in a way because of the love of Christ. Simply put, when you are blown away by the love of Christ to you personally, you want to share that love with others, period. And I'll be the first to admit that this world distracts me from that. This is the place where week after week after week, I get to be reminded of how distracted I actually am from what's really important and what's actually crucial in my life. I'm fooled and duped into chasing after all this stuff, after running after different things because they, they want my attention. And I think they're so great. And I see other people living these lives that look so amazing. And I'm distracted. And then week after week, this place, personal Bible study, missional communities, formation groups, all the things that are set up here help me to be reminded of what's actually crucial. So secondly, so not only do we have a new view of others, we also have a new view of Jesus. And this means that we're moved from simply appreciating him. See, before I was a Christian, I knew who, I knew who Jesus was. I knew of him. He was a really great teacher. He was really nice. He was kind of like Mr. Rogers meets Yoda, right? Like, He's super really crazy nice. Maybe he doesn't wear the cool sweaters like Mr. Rogers. And he's not as short as Yoda. But, you know, he's kind of that mystical Yoda guy, but with really nice personality. You could, like, really get along with Jesus. And then at the end of that, though, when you become a Christian and you're saved by him, he's God. He's no longer someone to appreciate from a distance, but somebody that you're rubbing shoulders with up close and personal. And he's getting deep into your heart. He's getting deep into your motives for everything that you do. And so he's not just a great teacher. He's not just someone who cared for the poor. He's not just someone who healed the sick. He is someone who rules our lives as Jesus, our king. So we have a whole new view of others, and we have a whole new view of Jesus because of being inspired by the love of Christ. So first, he outlines, now again, these are things, because as he keeps going through this, we have to remember, we're moving towards our calling as ambassadors. And he's, he's setting them up to get to that point. And he's saying that these things will motivate us. Number one, we're motivated by the fear of the Lord. There's a reward coming for those that stay firm and stay true to this. Number two, we are inspired by the love of Christ. And finally, we are called by the commission of God. And the first key idea in this section, verses 18 through 21, is reconciliation. He says that we have a ministry of reconciliation and we are entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And be, so because, now check this out, because of our rebellion against God, man was the enemy of God in our fellowship with him is destroyed. But through the work of the cross, Jesus Christ has brought man and God together. There is a reconciliation that can happen because of what Jesus did. Now, the basic meaning of the word reconcile means to change thoroughly, and it refers to the changed relationship 
between man and God. The person who reconciles us to God is Jesus Christ. And the place that he reconciled us is the cross. The person is Jesus. The place it occurred is the cross. No one else could have done it. That's where it happened. No one else was qualified to die for our sins. Now, the second key idea in this section is imputation. It's a big word. We're going to describe it. Here's the best way to understand, I think, imputation. The word is borrowed from a banking word. And it means, literally, to put into one's account. So um, when you deposit money in the bank, let's say you've got some cash and you need to put it in the bank, you bring that money to the bank and you, it's deposited into your account. It's credited to you. And in, in the idea of imputation, when Jesus died on the cross, our sins were imputed onto him, removed from our account and put into his. And then he died as if he was the one that committed those sins while we don't have them anymore. Removed out of our account and put into his. He did not deserve them because he didn't even do any of those sins. We actually deserved them because we committed them. And then he was treated by God as though he had actually committed those sins, holding nothing back in the punishment suffered by the wrath of God in response to those sins. And the result? All of those sins have been paid for. They're paid for. And God no longer holds them against us when we trust Christ as our Savior and repent of our sins and turn to God for salvation. But wait, there's more. <laughs> it's kind of like an infomercial there. But wait, there's more. Not only did he take all of our sins away from us, but we were imputed, God gave into our account the very righteousness of Christ. So when God sees us in Christ, he does not see our sin, he sees Jesus. He sees his righteousness. Now reconciliation is based on imputation. And, we, and when we read this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. Do you see that transaction there? That's transactional language. So reconciliation is based on imputation. Because the demands of God's holy law have been fully met on the cross, God can be reconciled to sinners. Those who believe on Jesus Christ as their Savior will never have their sins imputed against them again. They're not used against you in any way because Jesus has removed them. It says, blessed is the one, this is Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So how do all these big Bible words convince us? I mean, aren't we, starting, aren't we talking about evangelism here? How do all these things, how do these big Bible terms convince us and motivate us and inspire us to serve Christ through evangelism. Well, we are ambassadors and we have a message. God has committed to us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Now, um, at the time Paul wrote this, in the Roman Empire, there were two kinds of provinces. And one was a senatorial province and one was an imperial province. And the, senato and the senatorial provinces were made up of people who were peaceful and they submitted to the Roman rule. 
And they were kind of good little soldiers running around going, we love Rome. Rome's great. We don't want to cause any trouble. Rome's really cool. Just leave us alone. We're submitted to whatever Rome wants to do. And imperial provinces were not peaceful. They were filled with people who were dangerous because they would rebel against Rome. They didn't want Roman rule. They, want, they wanted to get rid of all this stuff. And so ambassadors, representatives of Rome, were sent not to senatorial provinces, but to imperial provinces. Because that's where, the, that's where all the war would break out and rebellion would start and rumors would float around and they wanted to make sure that people that were speaking against Rome were taken care of and sometimes publicly so that other people would see that and not want to rebel. If you are a Christian, you are an ambassador for Christ. You have been given a ministry of reconciliation and you have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. This is not negotiable. And we can say a lot of different things, but this is your title in Christ. As far as God is concerned, our world is an imperial province, and he has sent you and me as ambassadors into the world to declare peace. The message that he has entrusted to you is right in the verse, be reconciled to God. That's the message. Are you confused about what to say? There it is. Be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is available to you. Be reconciled to God through Christ who has died in your place. Because of Jesus, you don't have to suffer the consequences of your sin. Because of Jesus, you don't have to die and go to a place that is, that is uh, empty of God. When you die, you get in Christ to go to a place that God has designed for you, which is heaven upon your death. So this is the message that he has entrusted, to be reconciled to God. Outside of Christ, you are an enemy of him. In Christ, you are reconciled. Now, as we consider our overarching question to diagnose the health of our spiritual life, which was, um, are, you sharing, are you seeking opportunities to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus? Are you seeking opportunities with those who don't know Jesus? Let's be honest. Are you seeking opportunities to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus? And I would say for those of us that struggle with this, I want to give three really simple applications for you to think through. First, and this is not a shameless plug, I promise. Join a missional community this fall. Why? Because built into the framework of missional communities is something called My Circle, which is an initiative to help equip you to live out this ministry. It is built into the framework of our people getting together with other people who love Jesus to help us further our faith. It's built right in it. The idea of my circle is just to think about who has God placed you around, what are you doing um, with those environments, with those relationships, and how can you make the best of the opportunities you have with those people. So, so I would encourage you, because this is, that is a really awesome uh, framework to, to work within. Second, form a formation group. Again, why? Because built into the framework of our formation groups are personal, in-your-face accountability with other people who love Jesus and love you and want you to move forward in your faith in Christ. Willfully, let me, 
let me say it this way, willfully positioning yourself in the uncomfortable place of accountability is where the rubber meets the road in your spiritual life. Now granted, for these environments to actually be successful and effective, you've got to be surrounded by people that have the guts to say things to your face, right? You've got to be around people that when they see something not lining up, they're willing to say, hey man, like that's, that's kind of messed up. You're not, as a, as a Christian, let's think about this and pray together, how can we work this out in a better way? You've also got to be someone who's humble enough to embrace somebody getting all up in your face about your life. Let me give you an example of this from my own life. Me and Matt Stark have a formation group. Now, Matt and I sit. Sometimes we have breakfast together. Sometimes we're just on FaceTime. We pray together. Um, But one time I said, hey, man, one of the things I really want to set out to do is I want to just uh, hang out with my mom more. I want to just develop a better ongoing relationship with my mom who um, doesn't know who Jesus is. And so I told him that. And he goes, well, how long do you want me to give you until you've put something on the calendar? And I was like, give me a week. He's like, okay. So guess what? A week came, and he texts me. Hey, he didn't even ask. He didn't ask, um, did you schedule the time with your mom? He actually says, so when are you meeting with your mom? (laughs) I was like, this cat's in my grill. So I was like, yeah, it's been a rough week. Oh, it was really hard. Yeah, I was really stressed out. And he's like, okay, so when are you going to do it? Like, no, just right to the jugular, right? That's cool. I'm glad everyone's stressed, Mike. Everyone's stressed. Everyone's everyone's tired. Everyone's got issues. So when are you going to hang out with your mom? Yeah, I'm going to try really hard. Okay. So then like two days later, when are you hang? Like, he just kept, kept hitting me with this message. So finally, I... Texted my, I texted my mom. I was like, hey, what are you doing for lunch tomorrow? She's like, you know, so we ended up connecting. And I think that his pursuit of my good in that spiritual part of my life was probably going to be abandoned and neglected without him doing that to me. And the same thing happened um, when we've been, we send each other texts in the morning of what we've read in Scripture and how um, the Lord is speaking to us through the Bible. Every morning we send something to each other. And some, some mornings if I don't send something, he'll be like, um, yeah, so, what, so he'll send me something, and I'll be like, yeah, I didn't get a chance to read this morning. I was up really late, so I couldn't really get up and read, because re- that's when I read is in the morning. And so what's he right? He goes, well, you still got four hours before the end of the day, so let's get on it. I'm like, man, leave me alone. I need another formation group. Can't handle this real one. So here's, 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 the, here's the truth, though. You need, and I need, people like that in my life to hold me accountable to the things that God has called us to do. And within the framework of formation group is what we call the discipleship roadmap. And the roadmap are all the outcomes that we focus on here and helps us to kind of develop those. So sharing your faith story, reading the scriptures, praying, all those types of things. How are we doing with that? Look, can I just shoot straight? If you live life the way you want, or you'll live life the way you want, and will usually choose comfort over Christ-likeness when you live in isolation from other Christians. You, you won't intentionally pursue some of these things unless somebody who has the guts to hold you accountable to them is in your life because you'll most likely take the easy road, the convenient road, the comfortable road, the less risky relationally road, the one that gets you more in the here and now, opposed to developing something that has eternal results. 
Our lives in Christ are fed in community and starved in isolation. Together, we build each other up. Alone, we tear ourselves apart. And lastly, this might be the most practical thing that we could say this morning. As a, re- as a response to how are you doing in seeking these opportunities, I want you to think in your mind right now, I want you to think of who do you work with that maybe you, you work around, who do you live near, who are some family members, who are some friends that don't know Jesus. Just in your mind right now, who are some coworkers, who are some friends, who are some family members, who are some neighbors? Got some people in mind? I want you to pick one of them. One person. And for the next month, all I want you to do is pray for them. I don't even care what you pray for. Maybe you know something about their life that they need relief from, that they need God to comfort them in. Pray about it. Maybe you want to pray about your own um, pursuit of their spiritual good. Pray about that. Maybe you want them, maybe you want God to begin to open their heart to the truth of the gospel, pray about that. I just want you to pick one person. Write their name somewhere. Put it on a sticky note on your fridge. I go to the fridge a lot. So that's where I put all my reminders because I like the fridge. That's where the food is, guys. Okay? So that's why I like the fridge so much. So I want to put a sticky note where I go the most. So mine's the fridge. Wherever you go, wherever you think you're going to see it a lot, put a sticky note with their name and pray for them specifically. And Why? Because the more that this person becomes part of your regular daily prayer life, the more you're going to be interested and concerned about what's going on in their life. When I do this, I find myself engaging with them more often than I ever would outside of that because they're always on my mind. I'm always reminding myself that they're part of my life, that God has positioned me on purpose to be around them. Now, it would be terrible if I didn't hone in on one type of of person in this room. So if you're somebody that hasn't given their life to Christ, I want to implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. On the cross, he took your sins from your account and added them to his. He died, sacrificing himself for you. His death on the cross can bring you life in eternity. When you turn to Christ and repent, from your sins, which just means you no longer want to do the things that displease him. And you want to do the things that the Lord wants you to do. By aiming to please him, you experience this newness of life. You're a brand new creation in Christ. Adopted by our Heavenly Father and brought into the family of God. And the truth is that only those that have been adopted get the inheritance of heaven. So in light of this, and knowing that there is very likely some of you maybe here, who might be checking us out, who might be on the fence of this whole Jesus thing, not really sure where you stand on some things, I'd love to connect with you after service and talk more deeply about that, maybe even connect over lunch or coffee this week. My treat. Unless it's a lot of money, then it's your treat. Just kidding. Maybe. In closing, I want to, as a way to further inspire the heart of God to infiltrate our hearts, I'd like to read some opening paragraphs that are right from the My Circle training packet. I think that they're brilliant. What would it look like if every follower of Christ in a local congregation realized that God has placed them in the lives they live in around the people they live with 
for a purpose. What would it look like if Christ followers also realized that that purpose was to give those same people an opportunity to see the gospel in action, to lovingly proclaim its message and give them a chance to respond? That is so good. Do you know what that does when we read it like that? It depersonalizes it and it makes it look like this awesome, huge, big thing that God intends it to be. It's about all of us doing this together, not just our own little lives, but it's about uh, the people of God as a whole doing the things that God has called us to do. What would it look like? I love that. I love how it starts like that. Just that gives us a vision. What would it look like? As our team comes up, I just want to pray for us. We're going to just respond and worship. Just as a way of reminder, guys, we can be motivated by the fear of God. We can be inspired by the love of Christ. And we have been committed and commissioned by a call to preach and help people see the light of the gospel. It is so good. There is a reward at the end. Jesus is our example. And we are ambassadors. We are. This is who we are. So it's good for us to think about these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about these truths, I pray that you would inspire our hearts. You would help us to see the people you've surrounded us with. It's not just by chance. God, you have intentionally positioned us where we are within our workplace, within our neighborhoods, within our communities, within our families, so that we would have an impact on those around us. God, forgive us for how distracted we are by the pleasures of this world. I pray that your love for us, your compassion, your tenderheartedness, your meekness, that has drawn us to you, God, that it's those things that draw others, that, God, the truth of your word would seep into our hearts and we would see the foolishness of our ways sometimes of what we are chasing after at the expense of what you've called us to. God, I pray that we don't feel guilty Jesus, you took our guilt, you took our shame, you took our sinfulness, you took everything we did that you told us not to do. You also forgave us for neglecting all of the things you've called us to. So today, God, we just get another opportunity for you to inspire us and move us to caring about the people that you've put us around. In Jesus' name, amen.